You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. In space, you cannot hear him scream. It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. That, that's me screaming in space. <laughs> See? Couldn't hear a thing. How are you? What's up? Ah, I'm, you know, I'm good. What's up? I don't know. I, I learned how to make a, my, as as the audience knows, my, my daughter dragged me and my son into being vegetarians <laughs> some, some time, almost 18 months now back. And I learned how to make the equivalent of Swedish meatballs using no meat at all. No meat at all, and, Swedish uh, meatballs. came out really good. So we call them Swedish meatish balls. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very good, yeah. But yeah, so... I've spent the last the last couple of weeks sort of thinking about how to make food that isn't the same as the food you'd recognize. Erzatz food, fake food. Mm-hmm. Things that taste like animal that are made of vegetables. So it's been fun. Nice way to stay warm, <laughs> you know, here in January where the wind is howling already. I think your best bet is just like buying that liquid smoke and just pouring it all over whatever you're going to cook. Yeah, it tastes like you're eating a burning house, you know. It's the <laughs> best thing. Tastes like burning house, barbecued plywood. During the uh, the initial stage of uh, of the lockdowns, you know, I, I had started learning how to make pizza and stuff like that, and I consumed way too much cheese. And cheese has got a lot of salt to it, yeah. you know. Yep. But I was like, like I said, I was making pizzas every Sunday, mm-hmm. and I I, I like the pizza. But now I was I was looking around for like non dairy alternatives to cheese, and I found a couple of good ones that were like like cheese slices. Yep. But I haven't found anything good that melts good like you know like you need on a pizza i haven't even looked for that i i maintain still eat dairy and still eat eggs and fish uh-huh. my daughter doesn't mostly she will eat eggs i think and if, she, if i put them in stuff she doesn't complain okay i also started making sunday night pizzas experience the horrors that come with too much cheese but <laughs> on the upside you know during the great toilet paper shortage of 2019 <laughs> i was i was not contributing to the need for that too much so speaking of toilet paper, yep, <laughs> I have a quirk about me. Uh, it started as like a, a a joke, and then it just expanded from there. I will steal toilet paper whenever I go to hotels. You know, we would get hotels all the time during haunt season, and there was like one time I ended up stealing over the course of the month like nine or ten rolls of toilet paper from the place, and then. <laughs> So th- it just became this like thing that I always do, right? We stayed out in Ohio, you know, for the uh, the convention, and one of my roommates knew that I always steal the toilet paper. So we're walking down the hallway, and he's going by the like the push cart that the yeah. the, the, yes, the, the chambermaid's cart, yeah. 
and he is just grabbing them and throwing them over his head, and I'm catching them. And we must have grabbed like a good, you know, two or three that time. But we oh, would do that gosh. like every time, just stealing all this toilet paper. This week so, was way better last year. It does not endorse or recommend the stealing of toilet paper from hotels. But if you do, the two-ply stuff is really good. So here is something that I'm not proud of myself for. But I'm super proud of myself for. Unfortunately, last summer one of uh, one of our haunter friends had passed away. Mm. You know, it was during the, the the big lockdown. You couldn't have too many people inside the funeral home at one time, so we're kind of all like congregating outside in the parking lot. And then I went inside, and then I came back out, and I grabbed the 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 haunter dude, the one that was throwing the toilet paper at me from the chambermaid's cart. Yep. I was like, dude, I was like, dude, come to my car for a second. So I like grab him. We like run to the car. I open up the car door. I reach inside my jacket. I stole a roll of toilet paper from the funeral home. <laughs> Am I proud of myself? No, not really. But you know what? It got that dude to laugh. So yes, I'm glad I did it. I don't. I don't. I don't apologize for anything. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right. Before we get the show started, I have a trivia question for you. Oh man. All right, I think I'm 0 for 20, so let's keep on going. Right. So, real simple, what does zip code mean? Zip what, Zip code like on a letter? Yeah. Seriously, up until earlier today, I just thought zip meant like fast. Go, it's speed, go fast. It's, yeah, that's what I it's thought it meant. sped things along, yeah. But so nope. It, it has an actual it, meaning, huh? Yep, it actually means <sighs> something, yep. Where do you find these trivia questions, Bill? I like know a lot of trivia, but I don't know any of these. I, I, I type in trivia questions on Google, and you'd I'd, be surprised. I'd be surprised. Though. I'll get, should I guess now or should I guess later? I, I, eventually, I'm going to run out, and I'm going to just go to Bing and see what comes up there. Uh, <laughs> I'll guess later, whatever. i got a trivia question for you, then. Why would you use <laughs> Bing? Because <laughs> they're not following me around everywhere. That's why. Uh, they're putting the chemtrails in the... It's like, it's like copying the homework off the kid that always gets a C-. minus. <laughs> all right but let's uh let's have a show let's make a little podcast for all our little friends well, this is the week beginning january the 11th and yeah. uh why don't we have you start this week all right january 11th in the east there was a ce year of 1964 current era luther terry the at the time surgeon general of the united states reports that smoking tobacco products may be hazardous to human health it's, I mean, that's something that it's different now. I know Bill and I, we both grew up in the aftermath of that, right? So it takes yeah. sometimes 20 or 30 years for, for someone to go like, hey, maybe if we didn't cram our mouth hole with burning leaves all day long and fill our lungs with smoke, we'd live longer. And for that to become like policy and, and regulation and, and ultimately legislation, right? And it's amazing that it took until 1964 for somebody to put two and two together that way. Now, yeah, you go back to like, because uh, I love listening to old time radio, you know, like Abbott Costello and the Inner Sanctum and stuff like that, you know? Right. Yep. And I mean, and they're like, it's so funny that like, here we are making podcasts, which is like just going back to what old time radio was. Right. Kind of, you know, in a way. So at any rate, they have commercials for cigarettes, particularly camels, and they had the fun jingle, C-A-M-E-L-S. And they start talking about, like, no 
you know, it, it doesn't hurt the back of your throat and it's smooth and this, that, and the other. And it's like, that's, uh, let's see, that's World War II era. So that's like 1945 at the latest at that point, right? right? 1964. So here we are only like 20 years later. And the Surgeon General just had this like hunch, like, hmm, you know, inhaling smoke directly <laughs> into your lungs. Can't be a healthy thing. I, I got a hunch that that may... Be hazardous to your health. I got to tell somebody. (laughs) Yes. I think I should make this note. And it's funny. Like you think of the advertisements from, if you look back at the ads from like the thirties and forties, it's like the cigarette that doctors recommend is Chesterfield. It's like, dude, (laughs) come on now. You don't even have to go back that far. Look at what, go watch the exorcist. Whenever uh, the doctor brings uh, Reagan's mother into the office and like lights up a cigarette and starts talking to her. Right. We were just having this conversation, my friend Jim and I, a couple of weeks ago. Even when we were kids, because now you can't advertise cigarettes like at all. Right. There used to be, you could advertise on TV up until like 1971 or something like that. Right. And then like in magazines, you could still advertise. I remember like the the Marlboro Man. and I think you still uh, can. I don't think that there's a prohibition on advertising in print. I think there is. Oh, okay. Fairly recent, like in yeah. within the last within the last decade. But then again, how much print is there these days? Right. When's the last time, how much? When last time you bought a magazine? I haven't. Well, the you last time I bought a magazine, I had to borrow the money to get it from a Velociraptor. So that was, <laughs> was a while ago. You know what I I remember more than anything about uh, smoking and cigarettes when we were in high school. The teachers, Mr. Gagliardi, yep. asked a question: How many people in here smoke? cigarettes yeah and everybody in the class raised their hand except for you you were the only one that didn't raise your hand and the reason why you didn't raise your hand is you didn't hear the question (laughs) yep and that's about right i was like what did he say he has the people who smoke cigarettes like oh i missed that one so it's gonna be on the quiz yep 30 kids in the class and 30 for 30 all of us smoked cigarettes at age at age like 16 or whatever it was six to 15 or 16 yeah that was that was crazy yeah. Crazy different time. Like, you know, there used to be smoking areas at the high school. Yep. <laughs> How know? funny is that? There was a yeah. smoking area set aside. Yep. Yeah, set aside. And and there used to be an indoor one at the dances. Do you remember that? No, I never went to the dances. Oh, you still, those are so much fun. But they used to cordon off, like, the hallway where the exit door was. You know, remember the stairwell was? Yeah, at Boke? yeah. And that used to be the smoking area during the dances. Yeah. No kidding. Yep. <laughs> yep. Crazy. Who'd yep. have thunk it? Yep. All right. Moving on to January the 12th, 1966. January the 12th, 1966. Are you out there, Burt Ward? You son of a bitch. It's January 12th, 1966. Is the debut of the Batman television series. Holy Caesarian calendar, Batman. (laughs) Who was the first villain? Do you know? Do you remember? The first villain on Batman wasn't the Joker, Cesar Romero's Joker? Nope, it was the Riddler. Oh, my next guess was going to be Louis the Lilac. <laughs> Egghead. Worst villain ever. Egghead. Like, think about that, though. Like, Louis the Lilac was uh, Milton Berle. Egghead was, was Vincent Price. Yeah, Louis right, the yeah. Lilac was Milton Berle. V- Egghead was Vincent Price. Cesar Romero right. was the Joker. Burgess Meredith was the Penguin. Frank Gorshin was the Riddler. Eartha Kitt was Catwoman. I used to like Eartha Kitt as Catwoman because she almost had that, like, purring noise when yes. she talked. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I forget who played Mr. Freeze. Some idiot. <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, it was a super fun show. I used to love it when I was a kid and yep. like still go back and watch it now every now and then and, and laugh 
at it and like how colorful and energetic and goofy it is. That show was so popular, it actually morphed the way the comic books worked. Right. Because in the comic books, the Riddler was like a, a two-bit character. Like right. they, ba- they barely ever used him. He wasn't a really big nemesis and all that. But he was so popular on the television show that it, it, it bumped up his, uh, his, his clout in the comic books. It's, it's not surprising, although the, by the second season of that show, they weren't putting a lot of writing a lot of thought into the Riddler's riddles. It was like, golly gee, well, look at Batman. Look, a riddle. And then spray painted on the side of the building. He's like, here's, here's Batman reading it. Why did the chicken cross the road? Of course, Robin is baffled. He's like, they're at the chicken plant. That must be it. You know, it's like, okay, it's not really a riddle, Batman. Uh, do you remember that it wasn't always uh, Frank Gorshin that played the Riddler, too? There was... Um, yeah, was John Aston played him, too. Right, yeah, John Aston from the uh, Addams Family yep. TV series. Yep. Yep. Not nearly yeah. as cool as Frank Gorshin, yeah. Sometime, I guess it was right around the end of the year in the beginning of 2019, end of 2018, beginning of 2019, in the I'm making air quotes when I say this because it's, it pains me to say it, but the in the Arrowverse they did um, a, a, a television a televised rendition of Crisis on Infinite Earths. In the first episode, you can see the different planets of the multiverse all see this thing, mm-hmm. and they had Burt Ward in his not his Robin costume, but in a an orange sweater, <laughs> an orange sweater and a white uh, I mean a yellow shirt, walking a dog, and he sees. He sees that the sky is turning red and he, he yells out like, holy flaming death, Batman. And that was his one line. And that was Earth 66 because Batman show was on in 1966. It was kind of a cool little cameo. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so as I alluded to at the beginning of the segment, we brought this up a couple of weeks ago. My brother's birthday is January 13th, 1966. And his entire life, he thought that it was uh, that was the debut of Batman. But whenever he met Burt Ward... Burt Ward took <laughs> took a piss in his Cheerios and said, "No, I was actually the twelfth. It just like destroyed my brother, right?" So, yes. for my brother's last birthday party, as he likes to call it, uh, my brother's 49th birthday. You know, we threw him a birthday party, and my brother made the mistake of saying to me, he "Goes, you know what? I'd like if I could find the song that Batman did the Bat to see to." He goes, if I yep. could find that song, he goes, I would totally dance the Batusi. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> challenge accepted. He should have known better because I could find, I'm convinced I could find anything, right? Yes. So yep. did I find the song? You bet your sweet ass I did. It's called Holy Flypaper. And, <laughs> and I gave it to the DJ. And then I grabbed the microphone. And I go, oh, Norman. And then he starts playing the song. And you just see my brother's head just like drop. He's like, oh, no. So he had to do it. <laughs> You have to do the Batusi in front of the whole room. It was great. Oh, that's it was so fantastic. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was the last birthday party he ever had. Yep. You can't top perfection. Yeah, don't challenge me like that. <laughs> All right. Is... Next up, 13th, what do we got? All right. January 13th, 1976. Uh, the American inventor Ray Kurzweil, and we'll talk about him in a minute in more detail, and the National Federation of the Blind unveiled the Kurzweil Reading Machine. The first Omnifon optical character recognition system. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of ham on the sandwich, right? Yep. For for that, let me explain why it's neat. Please so, explain. Yes. You have a scanner, do you not, Mister Bill? I do. I have a scanner as well, uh, and I've had a scanner for a long time. Rumor has it my scanner may also be a printer. I have no idea. My, I, it could be. I'm not sure. It could very well be. 
Mine also may be something known as a fax machine. And I don't know what fax it spews out if I push the fax button, but it spells facts in a funny way. Uh, anyway, the, the part of this that's really interesting is the application. It's meant so that you can take documentation and it will be scanned by this computer. And then the contents of that scan can be recognized as words and then read out by a computer-generated voice. Think like Stephen Hawking's computer-generated voice, like, I stubbed my toe and it hurts. Right. That kind of thing. Or it sounds like all the scam phone calls that you get. <laughs> Attention. Your yes. social security number has been found. I am a prince from the country of <laughs> Democratic People's Republic of Congo. Yes. Uh, just like that. It was. It's the ability to read the characters off the page and convert them into another format. That's really important. Yeah. Because... With that Omnifont optical character recognition system or OCR system, you could now do things like take books and duplicate books and put them into a different format where they could be re-edited. So I don't know if you remember the hell that used to be if you had something that was printed and you tried to turn it into a document that you could edit on a computer with an OCR system. It would take hours sometimes for it to generate a Word document that was mostly kind of right. The fact that you could even do that is because in 76, Kurzweil figured out how you could make a, a scan, an optical scan, work. Right. It's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. Um, what year was that? 1976. So 1976, here I am in 2019, I was up in Canada, and that same kind of technology has advanced so much that I had my phone with me, and I have an app on my phone, everybody has it, basically. It's a, it's part of Google Translate. You could literally hold your phone up to a sign that's written in French and then look at the phone and it translates it on the spot. Exactly. And that's an extraction of Kurzweil's OCR. And that was... A direct, ex- a direct descendant of that. It's amazing. Extremely handy, too. Here's me, you know, fully admitting when I'm an idiot. I kept on seeing this word everywhere. Uh, you know, in well, not everywhere, but near my hotel and i can't remember what the word was but it was only like three or four letters i kept seeing it kept seeing it and, and i'm looking i'm typing it to translate i'm putting the the phone up trying to recognize it no app or google search is telling me what this word means in right. you know from french to english so i end up asking this security guard in one of the uh subway stations and he barely spoke any english he's french you know he's in montreal but we finally made it through the language barrier. And without calling me an idiot, he was able to let me know that that's actually a college and that's an anagram. <laughs> acronym. Yeah, yeah, that's and that, uh, yeah. that it's a college and it's actually an acronym. Yeah. <laughs> but like I said, he didn't say, you know, le idiot. La fool. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah, Kurzweil's an interesting dude. He's still active. He's a futurist and still an inventor. And his, like, his post-Kurzweil reading machine, he's sort of best known for this thing called the technological singularity. The idea being that technology advances so fast, it begins to outpace humanity's ability to adapt to it. And it becomes its own sort of technological life form. The idea of the technological singularity begins the end of humanity and the beginning of this sort of technological uh, empire based on robotics and stuff. It's really, he's a really interesting guy. That is terrifying. It is it is terrifying. That's the whole point of like the technological singularity. It's a scary thing. There's a couple of good movies that explore it like Ex Machina and Upgraded, who um, ironically enough, we can talk about the writer of that movie a little bit later. And 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal. 2000, 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal. Except the way it would be a singularity with Hal is if Hal 
all of a sudden there were two hows, and then there were four hows, and then there were 10 hows, and then there were 25 hows, and then there were 2,055 hows because Hal had figured out how to manufacture versions of himself. Now you're living in like Terminator, the, 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 those weird interstitial parts of Terminator that take place in the future. Attack of the Clones. Machines building machines. How perverse. And boom, yes. then it gets his head knocked off. Exactly like that. All right. Moving on to the 14th, 1954, the Hudson Motor Corporation merges with Nash Calvinator. Calvinator. (laughs) That sounds like a machine building a machine. (laughs) It sounds like a killer robot. Arnold Schwarzenegger and Brooke Shields in the Calvinator. Anyway. or that weird, like, that seventh, like, Home Alone film where Kevin's in the future and he's the last person on Earth. <laughs> I am the Calvinator. So we start over. The Hudson Motor Corporation and, and Nash Calvinator merge to form the AMC Corporation. Because I guess Volkswagen was, like, needed competition for shittiest car. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was that's kind of cool. Like that's the it wasn't the last contraction of the American automobile market, but it was almost the last. <laughs> AMC is a company, American Motors Corporation was Nash, who was who was known for making their low-cost Nash Rambler and Hudson, who I don't even know what they made. Oh, um, the Nash Rambler. Nash Rambler, yeah. That's from that novelty song Beep Beep. Yes. Yes. Okay. Little Nash Rambler. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 Go on. Yes. So you have heard of the the genesis of AMC yep. in a pop novelty song, but yes, ironically enough, the Nash Rambler would kind of carry on into the American Motors lineup as they progressed because it was that became the platform upon which all of their lower priced cars were were built. So it was like the Rambler. Uh, there was a Rambler wagon. There was the I think the Nomad and a couple of others. And then don't forget the Gremlin. Well, that's the, again, they got to the 1970s intact. And then in the 1970s, they started to put out different cars. They hired a designer out of GM. He went to town kind of on their limited, very limited amount of uh, manufacturing capacity in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And they put out the Gremlin. They put out the Hornet, which was like a Gremlin, a Hornet with the, uh, the was like a Gremlin with a trunk. They put out the Matador, the Ambassador, the Kenosha Cadillac is what it was known as. And a bunch of a bunch of other cars, but they all used like the same four speed transmission. They all used the same two hundred cubic inch uh, straight six, at least in the base models. And, and they all kind of look the same too. They all kind of have this like upside down bathtub kind of shape to them. My brother, yes, my brother had an AMC Spirit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the uh, first uh, that was the first like SUV, right? The Spirit was the one with the, uh, the uh, four wheel drive. It wasn't an SUV. It was. It was. It, it, it basically looked like it looked like a Gremlin, is what it looked like, because they all looked the same. The AMC Spirit. It looked like you took a Gremlin and a Hornet in a particle collider, kind of. Yeah. A, yeah yep. It looked like they kind of looked both looked the same. They look. It looked the Spirit looked similar to both of them at the same time. How's that? Okay, so I owned a, an AMC from this time period, mm-hmm. time period of the late 1970s when they when they kind of stopped being a car company. Not long after that, they 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 did the Hornet. Matador, the Gremlin, the Pacer, which everybody remembers is the weird bubble car, yeah. which sold uh, like 300,000 cars its first year. It's crazy. Um, and some others. And then they did this other generation where they did the Concorde, they did the Spirit, and then they bought Jeep. Mm-hmm. And they started, really, they released the Jeep Wrangler, the Jeep Comanche, and some others. And that was like what they were kind of known for. And the car business died off like right then. And they stayed on as Jeep until Chrysler bought Jeep and AMC, and they, cl- they shuttered AMC altogether. There was also a time when the French company Renault owned a bunch of AMC as well. 
and they, it was when they were released. I actually had I had a Renault. I had a Renault Alliance. Oh, yeah, I remember those. Do you remember like the joke? You never buy a French car unless you live in France. That's why, because <laughs> those cars were terrible. Um, oh wait, wasn't there a, a French car called Le Car? Yeah, that was a Renault as well. Was and, it? and the reason that Renault bought AMC, like this is like okay, so this is like Renault bought their way into the American market so that they'd have an existing dealer network by buying a controlling stake in AMC. At the time, AMC was only two percent of the American domestic automobile market. So that's like, you know, I wanna be I wanna be the owner of a baseball team, but I buy the shittiest baseball team I can possibly get my hands on. Yeah. Appleton Red Wolves or something, <laughs> who have a zero zero batting average and half of their players are dead. You know? Yeah, I would I would make like a, a better sports reference if I knew anything about sports. Yeah, I, I just made that one up off the top of my head. I don't know that if, if there's an Appleton Red Wolves, I, I have never seen you play. Being the person who wants to like really get, just as Facebook is becoming really popular, you're like, I'm going to throw some money right into MySpace. Because all, all the investors are distracted by Facebook. It's a shiny new thing. Not even MySpace. It's like, I'm going to throw some money into LiveJournal. Oh, <laughs> Angel Fire. You know, people can make their own websites with ads built in. All right, let's move on to the 15th. <laughs> okay, so fashion has consequences, Bill. Did you know that? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a mess. So fashion has <laughs> consequences, and inventors sometimes generate consequences. And as an example of both of those things happening simultaneously, in 1797, a haberdasher, that's a hat maker, named John Etherington of London, stepped out of his shop wearing his first... The first ever prototype top hat. And you say to yourself, well, Jeff, I'm sure you're thinking, what the hell does that have to do with anything? (laughs) Well, John Etherington's first prototype top hat caused so much commotion that he was arrested (laughs) and he was charged with disturbing the peace and creating a public nuisance. It was reported in the paper that he had stepped out of his shop with this ridiculous hat on. It caused such a stir that women fainted, children cried, and men crossed the street to get away from him because the hat was so terrifying to the audience that saw it, the people that saw it on the street. And even the police made him take his hat off before they brought him into the police station. I was so. kind of hoping that you were going to say everyone was so distracted by the hat they he forgot to wear pants. Uh, it would be He probably could have got away with it. <laughs> and the weird thing is, like, within a space of a year or so after that, that was the, the fashion hat in the all of England. You know, that's the hat that everybody wanted to wear was right. a top hat. Yeah, because they could get away with not wearing pants. I want a top hat now. Yeah. Like, hey, you like my hat? Let's see, you feeling swoony? Oh, my goodness, I've never seen such a big hat before. <laughs> <laughs> Clunk. Hey, she's out. Get her. Get her. Throw her in the donkey cart, you know. Um, and then Lincoln would, like, moved in with his stove ta- stovepipe hat. Right. Which is like a top hat with a giraffe neck particle it's, collider experiment. It's it's a, right. It's an even topper hat. It's a top <laughs> hat for people who are excited. It's it's crazy to think of of that. Like somebody who who puts on. I, I don't even know what the what it would be like today. What would cause that kind of stir today? If someone walked out of their like clothing store dressed as, I don't even know what. I think you'd have to you go know, if some if someone walked down my street dressed as an astronaut. I would be like, that's weird. I know. And that's it. I mean, think about it. You know? Lady Gaga shows up with a meat dress. And I'm like, wow, she's quirky, but nobody fainted. You know, right? Nobody, nobody was like, "Oh my God, cover the children's eyes." I don't, I don't get it. But there it was. Poor John Etherington. He must have had a hell of a time trying to explain. Like, let me explain. This hat is meant to make me look taller. Look, it, it makes me look slimmer because it makes it, it changes the way that my profile works. They're like, take, take that thing off, dude. Take it off. You know, or it's the truncheons again. 
It makes me look like Slash with Guns N' Roses. In 200 years, you're, everybody's going to be wanting to wear one of these because they're going to be singing Sweet Child of Mine. I want you to know that. <laughs> In 200 years, we're going to have no idea what that man's eyes look like. And it's all because <laughs> of my hat. <laughs> right. It's going to be a hat with a, a cigarette that causes cancer sticking out from underneath <laughs> the brim. And uh, some Muppet-like hair. All right. Let's go on to the 16th. Ah. January the 16th, 1976, the Donnie and Marie Variety Show hits the airwaves to the delight of grandmothers everywhere. <laughs> what what year was that? 77? 1976. Jeez. Donnie and Marie were a brother and sister from a large family. Donnie yes. was actually a part of a popular music group, just the Osmonds, with him and, yep. him and his brothers. And he yep. he wasn't the youngest. I think he was second youngest. Yeah, he was second youngest. Jimmy, the youngest one Jimmy was, Olson. I think, Jimmy. Paul. Yeah, Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy, that's yep. right. Jimmy Osman. Not Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy Olsen was from Jimmy, yeah, Jimmy, Superman. Jimmy Olsen is Superman's best friend. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, uh, Jimmy Osmond. Yep. Yes. So uh, anyway, and then Marie was the youngest sister. And they, right. they paired those two up as a singing duo. And they had a variety show. And there would be music and sketch comedy and guests. Allegedly sketch comedy. Yeah. You know, the show would always climax, for lack of a better word, with um, (laughs) a music. Yeah. A musical montage. Yeah, a musical montage uh, where uh, they would sing, I'm a little bit country and I'm a little bit rock and roll. Where And um, neither of them were either of those things. Yeah, neither one was either, right? Uh, Marie would always sing a country and western song, and then Donny Osmond would sing a, a rock and roll song. Like I said, 76, mid-70s. Variety shows, man, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting one. That was like yeah, they were all over the that place. was the most popular thing in on television at those days. It's because they were cheap. It's like reality TV now. Like all you gotta do is point the camera at the stage. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. That's all we need is a stage, you know, and Artie Johnson to come out and be a character actor every now and then. <laughs> But there was like Donnie Marie, yep. the captain and Tennille. Like for everybody who's who's under our age, they're going to be like, w- what are these weird words you guys are saying? Yeah, I don't know any of these people. Just just hold your breath, but, guys. We're going to get through this. Yeah, there was Captain and Tennille. Right, yes. Who else had Sonny and Cher. Sonny and Cher, right. The Hudson Brothers. Oh, my God. The Brady Bunch had their own variety the Brady show. Bunch. That's right. The Brady Bunch variety show that lasted like six episodes. And then the network was like, we have to take this off the air or the world is going to end. <laughs> This has to be, the, we have yeah, to stop it's, this. It's a mercy killing at this point, yeah. A, Glenn Campbell had a show. Hee-haw was a show like that. Right. Even Lawrence Welk was kind of a show like just that. Just about to bring I that mean, up, yeah. And all these shows, yep. my grandmother loved all uh, every single one of them. Yep, yeah, so did mine. Yeah, she was, yeah, Meme was big into variety shows. She would just sit there in a chair and clapping. Yeah. My grandmother wasn't big into Donnie Marie. She loved country music, but she didn't love Donnie Marie. And I think much like me, she she sort of got weird about them when they would sing love songs to one one another, and their brother and sister. Yeah, which always was awkward. Yeah, because the- to be sitting there on a Sunday night, like you know, eating chocolate ice cream, which is kind of what we would do at my grandmother's house, and, and they're singing like, um, well, they had puppy love. Their their number five hit, "Morning Side of the Mountain," which is a love song that they sing to one another. It's like your brother and sister. I know they're like Mormons, and you know Mormons. You know, up until maybe like the early 1900s had the whole polygamy thing going. But I think you could draw a line in the sand, a hard line in the sand when it comes to brother and sister singing love songs to each other. (laughs) What the hell is the matter with you? 
Yeah, like I said, I wonder what their parents were thinking. Like, look, we make a lot of money from this show. Yeah. A lot we're, gonna, of we're never going to have to work yeah. if we just let this run. Let's just let this run. You know, we'll be okay. And that's kind of where they. And we bring this up from time to time, and it's worth mentioning with the uh, with the Osmonds in general. The Jackson Five were, you know, insanely popular. I mean, they had. Yes. I mean, they were on Motown and, um, you know, they had a lot of hits. They even had their own cartoon, their own set, you know, yep. Saturday morning cartoon show. You know, the uh, the Jacksons are a family of, you know, a black family. And this country, even into up to recent memory, are crazy. You can't have your your white kids listening to, you know, black artists. You just We just can't have that in rural America. Not in that time, anyway. So the Osmonds were actually put forward as like a white alternative to the Jackson Five, and if you watch like the videos of the Osmonds performing side by side with with the Jackson Five, yeah, they, it's a definite, a immediate like, if not outright plagiarism, like definitely inspired by yeah. or meant to capitalize on right. what the Jacksons were yeah. already doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the Jacksons were just way cooler. I mean, you put up like "I Want You Back Alive" side by side with "One Bad Apple" by the Osmonds. <laughs> you, I mean, you got nothing. Yeah, you, you got nothing. You got. You can't do it. So the Osmonds are definitely the Pat Boone to the Jackson 5's Little Richard. Yeah. It's a definitely. All right. Yep. So moving on to the last day, what do we got? So the slow news week for sure. Uh, because in 2001, on this date, January 17th, President Bill Clinton posthumously raises Meriwether Lewis's rank from lieutenant to captain. Do you know who Meriwether Lewis is, Bill? Mm, wasn't she on Seinfeld? <laughs> Good guess, but no. Meriwether Lewis is the Lewis half of the Lewis and Clark expedition of, like, 1792. Well, sack my Julia. Or thereabout. So, Bill Clinton raised his rank posthumously 200-plus years later from lieutenant to captain. Ask yourself, why might this be something important to get onto television and into the news? Yeah, why? why? And then hold that thought, okay. because he does something else. Okay. A little earlier in the week, Go on. he also awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, posthumously, okay. to Theodore Roosevelt for the Battle of San Juan Hill, which took place in 1896. Okay. Again, ask yourself, why might a president, a sitting president, go through the rigmarole of having a ceremony to do these things over the course of one particular week in the year 2001? Yes, Jeff. Why was our former president, William Jefferson Clinton... So ambitious about a bunch of nonsense all at once. Because it was going to get Meriwether Lewis and Theodore Roosevelt back into the zeitgeist of the average American and somehow associate President Bill Clinton with those two men and their historical uh, triumphs. But why? And not be focused on the deposition that he was having to give in the sexual assault trial where he was accused by Paula Jones of sexual assault. Which was also... Going on that week and all over the news. Uh. So you're trying to balance out this our horrible story with these other stories that just make you look like a craven human scab. <laughs> so I don't know. I'll take that for what it's worth. But yes, perhaps to Theodore Roosevelt and to Meriwether Lewis, who, as I understand it, crawled out of his grave and slapped Bill Clinton. And Theodore Roosevelt crawled out of his grave and, and, and kicked Bill Clinton in the nuts. <laughs> um, but both were very appreciative of the change in rank and status mm. before crawling back to you know the afterlife. In this age of people who do things politically to throw people off the news in a way that is way more sophisticated than in 2001, right. it's still audacious to think that that would be something that no one would immediately see through like it's, a, it's, it's somebody 
you know, ripping apart a sheet of saran wrap. Right. It's so transparent. Yeah, and that and that's another thing too is like while you were saying that, I'm not going to give any uh, modern examples because I, I really don't want to ever get too political with this show uh, other than neutral. Uh, but even in recent examples, it's like, you know, something goes horribly wrong and then the leader of whatever, you know, state or country will do something you know, to deflect awful. Like, don't pay any attention to that. We've got this going on, you know? And right. it, it seems like it's a modern thing, but it's not a modern thing. I mean, that. I mean, certainly Clinton wasn't the first person to do something like that. Nope, and it's true. There are, are examples going all the way back into the early, early days of American presidential history where foolishness like this happens. Or, oh, right. I mean, just think know. about Abraham Lincoln was like, Civil War, <laughs> look at my hat. I've got a giant top hat on. Isn't this impressive? Only 65 years ago, this would have caused a sensation. Uh, oh, well, which which box seats are mine? Am I am I in the presidential box? Oh, my God, that's great. I've never seen such a good play. And, um, and look at this beard. A young lady suggested it for me. <laughs> she was only the tender age of 11, and yet so lovely. It's, oh, um, you know, or Nixon, like, you know, Look, I, I, I'm a terrible person, but I also like dogs. And he lifts his dog up by its ears on camera. Like, dude, you just don't do that. And hanging out with Elvis, right? <laughs> this is definitely gonna make definitely gonna make you look better. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's go on to the celebrity birthdays. I have already regretted my judgment on this one. January 11th, 1974. David, Grant, Jason. <laughs> Emma, Nicolette, and Elizabeth Rosenquitz are the yeah. All, Imagine that kid having to write his name in kindergarten. No, no, no. That's the, what was the first one again. That's not that's not one kid. That is six. It's not. That is six different kids. David Grant. Is it, is it the Osmond family? David Grant, Jason, Emma, Nicolette, and Elizabeth Rosenquitz are the first sextuplets to live past infancy. Wow. Yeah, 1974. Now, that's pretty cool. But check this out. Six years later, okay. Jan- Six years later. January 11th in Italy. And here's here's where I hate my own guts. Ready? Okay. Uh, Letizia, Linda, <laughs> Fabrizio, Francisco. Fabrizio. Fabrizio. Francesco, Giorgio, and Roberto Giannini. Rolls right off the tongue. Are sextuplets that live past infancy and they were born six years later on the exact same day as the first ah, yeah go figure yeah wow january 11th must be a pretty auspicious day oh yeah or nine months earlier yeah i got nothing really to add on to that but, uh, other than you know go moms and you know well i, I ironically enough the what was the the Giannini family, right? The Giannini family, all those those six those six Giannini kids that became the starting lineup for uh, Inter Milan. Only twelve years later, S- soccer team joke right there. Okay, soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like wrestling and Jeff likes soccer and um, and boxing and never the Twain shall meet. So so January the twelfth. Who do you got? January the 12th, 1965, in the beautiful town of Haverhill, Massachusetts, only a short 30-minute or so drive from where I live right now. Uh, Rob Zombie, the American musician and filmmaker uh, from the band Rob Zombie. And White Zombie <laughs> before that. And White Zombie, yes. Uh, and a filmmaker who like remade Halloween and did House of a Thousand Corpses and some other stuff. Yep. 
uh, was born. So. If you work in the haunted house industry, like like I do, uh, you will have Rob Zombie jammed down your throat like they're loading a cannon. I I am an anomaly because I don't like Rob Zombie's music, nor do I like his movies very much. Um, I'm not a huge fan either. I remember um, how I found out about White Zombie was in the back of a horror movie magazine called Toxic Horror that I think lasted for three issues before they went bankrupt. And they had this part in the back of the book about metal. This was like in 1989 or 1990. And they were talking up White Zombie's first release. Happy birthday, Rob Zombie. Happy birthday. Yep. Oh, should we sing it? So we sing happy birthday like like we were in Rob Zombie's bed. Happy birthday, Rob Zombie. Happy birthday, Rob Zombie. You gotta go like this. You gotta go. Happy birthday, Rob Zombie. Yeah. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you All go. All right. Moving on. Uh, January the 13th, uh, my brother, your brother, and... In 1919, Robert Stack, who most people would know as a host of Unsolved Mysteries. But while I was looking up Robert Stack uh, and his bevy of accomplishments, wow, interesting guy. I first saw Robert Stack because he's an airplane. Yes, he was, uh, wasn't he McCluskey? I believe so, yeah. A couple of episodes ago, we brought up the very first 3D movie called Buona Devil. And yeah, that's yeah, right. Robert Stack is in that as well. Okay. And check this out. In 1935, Robert Stack came in second place in the National Skeet Shooting Tournament. That's 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 no slouch. That's that's some good shooting right yep. there. I I like stuff like that when somebody has lived like uh, like many many lives. You know, yeah. actor, skeet shooter, television host. I mean, the guy's kind of on his, on his deathbed. I'm quite sure he didn't go like, you know, I wish I would have done this instead. There we go. Because he was also in the in the Untouchables, the Untouchables television yep. series, but he was also yep. in Caddyshack too. All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, January fourteenth, nineteen forty four. Interesting dude named Marjo Gortner. Uh, is born now you may say to yourself i don't know who marjo gortner is and what the hell kind of a name is marjo anyway marjo gortner is a kid who was born to this family of traveling evangelicals his name is a condensation of mary and joseph and he went on to become an evangelist as a kid too and then made a film that sort of showed the back end of what that traveling evangelism was like and sort of blew the lid off how much horse (laughs) is sort of part of the grift parlayed that it's a fantastic... I can't remember the name of the documentary, but if you seek it out, it's totally worth watching. Oh. Parlayed that into a career as an actor. Never really took off. He was always like B-minus list actor. Okay. He would be like the the headline star in a movie like Food of the Gods, which premiered on television, pretty much. Yeah. Or he starred opposite Carolyn Monroe, who was a B-level starlet in Star Crash, an Italian ripoff of Star Wars. And... Made a career out of playing all of these like kind of quirky, crappy, cheesy genre movies and a bunch of stuff on television too. He played, I think, the manager in Viva Knievel, like the Evil Knievel movie from the seventies. <laughs> like he's a he's not a great actor, but he's an interesting dude, and you bump into him everywhere once you realize kind of who he is. Uh, Marjo. All right, so moving on to the fifteenth in fourteen twelve, a lovely young lady known as Joan of Arc, whose famous last words are. Is it hot in here or am I crazy? <laughs> Good old Miss of Arc. <laughs> as they, they called her in uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent yep. Adventure. Oh. Played by um, Jane Wheedlin. Jane Wheedlin of the Go-Go's. Of the Go-Go's, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And the Go-Go's was a band from the 1980s 
And another band that started in the 1980s, who just so happens to be my favorite band of all time, born in 1959, the bass player with the impossible to pronounce and even harder to spell last name, Peter Travalis. Wow, cool. Yep. I'm staring at a Marillion poster right now. All right, moving on to the 16th. Who do we got? All right. The January 16th, 1901. I'm going to give you the name of this inventor, and you're never going to guess the thing that he invented. And we have a pretty good track record of this, okay. of, of me giving hints. But I'm not going to give a hint. I'm good at it. This time. Yep. I'm, right. His name, his first name is Frank. Okay. Remember that. That's important. Frank. You may have seen the thing that he's invented, and you may not know that he invented it. Okay. So it's very specialized. It's a very specialized kind of vehicle. Like we talked a little bit about American Motors, right? I got it. So this is Frank. You ready? Yep. Zamboni. Oh, that's easy. He invented the, the three-ring binder. That's exactly. Wait, no, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was the top hat. <laughs> the top hat's not a vehicle, you idiot. <laughs> it, it, it was in 1797. It's a vehicle for getting ladies. That's what it is. It's right. It's for making women swoon and children cry. All right. So the Zamboni... What did Frank Zamboni? What did yes. Frank Zamboni? He invented the Zamboni. Oh, the only part of the hockey game that I find really interesting. <laughs> that must be a fun job to have. Oh, yeah. I was work today. I drove around an oval for 14 minutes. <laughs> I notoriously don't really like sports, but I've been to see hockey games a few times because some of my friends like it. We go to see like the Providence Bruins because it's cheap enough. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's 20 bucks or whatever. Yeah. But I get very excited when the Samboni machine comes out and never fails. I always start singing the 19 like 80 rap song by Nucleus uh, Jam on it. But I start going Zamboni, Zamboni, Zamboni. That's him. Right. Without him, we wouldn't have that song. Without sure. him, the ice would never be smooth. It would never be smooth. It would be crackly gross yep. ice. It was, uh, it was how they did it before is they had a Zippo lighter and a really ambitious dude. Yes, yep. and with a broom. Uh, all right, and uh, wrapping up the birthdays, January 17th, 1977, Lee Wannell. Uh, now, who is Lee Wannell? Lee Wannell is the writer, or co-writer anyway, of the very first Saw movie. And yep. you would have seen, have seen, saw, yeah. You would have seen him <laughs> in the movie. Uh, yep. He is the other guy, besides the Princess Bride dude, in the locked yep. up bathroom. Yep. He also went on to write and direct. I found myself really, 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 really loving a film he made called Upgraded. Uh-huh which is worth seeking out if you haven't seen it. Well, he's done quite a few movies. One in particular that he did that I really liked was called Dead Silence. Yep. With a, it's almost like a ventriloquist puppet kind of movie. It's, it's yep. kind of hard for me to explain, but it was, it was really good. It was interesting, and it had that kind of like Saw kind of twist ending too. He, he also very recently did the, um, that fantastic update of The Invisible Man. Yep. I don't know if you, you watched that. That was am- yep. amazingly good. Yep. So that's him. And that's only his third film as a director. Oh, yeah. I think he also wrote the script for it as well. Yep. And uh, he definitely has an eye, not only for good storytelling, but a, a, an eye for framing and for pacing, too. He's a, the guy's really, really good. And, and, and even though we're talking about The Invisible Man, which is one of the oldest of Universal's monsters, right. he's still able to make it fresh and interesting. He also wrote the Insidious trilogy, too. I, yep. I did not know that. Yeah, he yeah. directed the third one yeah. and wrote the first two. Yeah. Happy birthday, Lee Wannell. Yep. He's made some great movies, but he has never written... The worst song ever. All right. What do we have for the worst song ever this week? 
I ask. The worst. I ask, but I know, and that's why I'm laughing. I ask, yeah, but I know. Yeah. So the worst song ever for this week comes to us all the way from the year of of 1979 actually you know it's weird like i don't not a numerology guy mm-hmm. we've had 1797 1973 1976 and 1979 all in the same week here as, as some of our events which are like all permutations of the same four numbers this means absolutely uh, nothing <laughs> it means this means nothing you, you th- wait hold on hold on wait back up you think that's a staggering coincidence we got 12 kids with the same birthday <laughs> Right, out of the same, <laughs> out of only two mothers, yeah, yeah, exactly, at the same time. All right, all fighting for their way out. Right, okay, Gosh, go on. It's been like trying to get off a Japanese subway. Go on. Uh, Where, all right. Anyway, so 1979. Ever. This is a song by a, technically a one-hit wonder, although not really. Uh, you may know him by his performing singer stage name of Rupert Holmes. Oh. <laughs> I heard that noise, and the song that he's most known for is Escape, or the Pina Colada song, which became really popular kind of again because of the first of the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. It's on the soundtrack right. to that. Yeah, uh, that song in 1979 was a, it was a huge hit. It was a smash it was yeah. hit. It was, yep. it was just like, it was everywhere, and it, it went to number one really, really fast. I got a couple of things about this song. One, let's play the clip. Because, oh, I don't... I mean, do you even have to play the clip? Who doesn't know this this bit right here? That you like pina coladas And getting caught in the rain And the feel of the ocean And the taste of champagne If you like making love at midnight In the dunes on the cape God, now the the song. I remember I was like a, like a not even a teenager when the song came out, right? And I just remember yep. like everybody being around. If you like pina colada, and but the thing is, like the song lyrically is about a guy pretty up, you know, had it with his wife or his girlfriend or whatever. So he decides he's gonna right. cheat on her, and he puts an ad in like the newspaper. And then like yeah, it's just, yeah, and then this like chick like well, responds to the ad. She's like, oh yeah, I'm all about you. You you, you got it. You got it backwards. Oh. He sees the ad from a oh, chick. Oh all right. Oh all right. From a woman, and then he responds to that ad, and he's he becomes infatuated with that ad. And they meet up. And then, and they meet up, and yeah, and it turns into the end of a Three's Company episode. Yeah. And it's like yeah, it's like oh you too, <laughs> and then. They fall back in love, and I'm like, the devil's asshole. I'm going to be suspicious of this broad for the rest of my life. Yes, um, it's definitely a song about two horrible, horrible people who shouldn't be in a relationship with each other. With a catchy hook. And the lyrics are problematic. They were problematic in 1979, but they're they're more so now. Like, the opening line is, having trouble with my lady. No, no, what? no. The problematic lyric in that song is if you like making love at midnight in the dunes of the Cape, let me tell you something. Sand gets in everything. Nobody, <laughs> nobody. You are going to get chafed. Nobody likes yeah, making that's, love. That's going to be like a sexual fetish in thing. In the dunes right? of the Cape, yeah. No, like yeah. only a Tuscan Raider could really appreciate that kind right. of lyric. First, you gave, you know, I thought I, <laughs> I thought I had sand crabs, but. <laughs> so. Uh, you'll appreciate this because this I have a horrible memory, like just a horrible childhood memory with this song. 
Um, we used to go roller skating in the 70s. You know, that was like the thing to yes. do. And, uh, 70s oh, and yeah. early 80s. And this song was really popular. Still. And because this song was yes. really popular, Pina Colada, uh, you know, an alcoholic beverage, but it also became like a popular flavor. Yes, it did. Like, you know, yeah, coconut and pineapple. Yeah, exactly. The roller skating rink had, you know, ices or whatever they had. And one of the flavors they had was pina colada. Like some of my friends punked my ass and said, hey, you know, they're giving out free samples, right? I'm like, what? They go, yeah, they're giving out free samples. You just have to go up and ask. You say, hey, you know, can I get a free sample of the pina colada? And they give you a free sample. I'm like, wow, you're kidding me, right? So I go up and I'm like, hey, uh. Can I get a free sample of the pina colada? And the guy just gives me this like dirty look and he's like, no. And I was just so defeated. Like he wasn't even nice about it. He was just like, <laughs> no. And I was just like kind of like skulked off and like, uh, yeah, it was a huge joke played on me. But now seriously, like I hear the pina colada song and all I could think of is, is that guy. No, jerk. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's funny. The song is kind of like a. It's I don't know if it came out before or after. I'm pretty sure it came out after. It's like that. And I'm gonna say this, and this is gonna make some element of our listenership hunt me down and beat me with kayak <laughs> oars. But it's sort of the same sort of song as Margaritaville, which I hate. Oh, you're not alone. By Jimmy Buffett, right? So it's that same kind of like I don't know. It has a beat that's like it's sort of island-ish if the island-ish is the Florida Keys <laughs> and it's like smarmy and annoying and eminently singable even now which is problematic for yeah. me but it's it's island it it's islandish in like midwestern people on vacation in the yeah. islands yeah like like Rhode Islandish <laughs> is what it's like don't be dissuaded by just how crappy this song is. He has a history of writing crappy songs. Oh, yeah. He had that other song, Him. D- yes. And, and in 1969 or 1970, he wrote a song called Timothy yep. for his first band, The Boys, which is about two miners that eat a third miner who are trapped in a mine. What? You should go listen to it. It's awesome. Oh, my it's God. It's not a good song. How did we not pick that one? Oh <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that one only went to like number seventeen or something on on the charts this week in nineteen seventy. But it's a terrible, terrible song. You know what else bugged me about Rupert Holmes is he didn't look like a rock star. He looked like a douchebag secondary character on a nineteen seventies sitcom. Well, here's the thing: like. is is he pretty much kind of was that? Like he wrote a ton <laughs> of plays. He produced a load of records. He wrote a whole bunch of songs for other people. He his name was wrote Rupert. music for a bunch of variety shows. He was all over the place with with stuff. He he like wrote and produced a bunch of Barbara Streisand records. Like he's a known dude. And Rupert Holmes is his stage name. His regular name is like I don't know Dominic Fartnock. But <laughs> but like he's really well known and he's a tireless tireless worker. And up until relatively recently, I don't know if you remember the show Remember When, which was this radio show show. It's like a half an hour sort of dramedy that aired on AMC for like a year and a half. It was 53 episodes. He wrote all 53 episodes. He wrote the theme song. He directed half of them. Like, he wrote a bunch of the music that was in it. Like, the dude is, he is definitely putting his nose to the grindstone and getting caught in the rain. He's got a hell of a resume, yeah. He is into champagne. <laughs> all right, so moving yes, along. Uh, the, the answer to our trivia question, our trivia question was. God, I thought you forgot about this. Okay. What does zip code mean? I know this, and I'm going to answer it in my best Alex Jones voice. Zeta Reticuli! (laughs) That's where the aliens come from. Zeta Reticuli. The zip code, the Z-I-P, stands for... Xylophone. No, no, wait. (laughs) The Zone (laughs) zone Improvement Plan. Well, that 
clears yeah. up a ton for me. They basically just numbered all the post offices. Right. Like you take you take me for an example. Like I live in New. I'm only going to talk about me because I know me best. Um, right. I live in New Bedford. Now, New Bedford has like four or five different post offices. But prior to 1963, you would write, you know, something, 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 you know, Main Street, New Bedford, Massachusetts. And then New Bedford would get the all these letters and like Main Street. Hey, do you know what part of the city Main Street is in? And like, right. yeah, that's going to be out in the north end. And then all those letters would go to the north end uh, post office. Now, meanwhile, they everybody what they did was they numbered all of the post offices so, for example, my post office would be 02745. Right. Yeah, the, the numbers actually translate. The first number is the national area. Mm-hmm. Then it's this, this, the sectional center is the next two. And then the associate post office or delivery area in the last two. Oh. So, like, like in New Bedford, we have 02745, 02740, 02744, and 02746. So those four sixes are all like the New Bedford area. Yeah. Oh, right. that's interesting. And I'm sure that that was you know put together before there was like sorting machines who had to try and read those off of envelopes, right? So right. typically mail sorter was a job. I know that the writer Charles Bukowski wrote a book called Post Office where he described being a mail sorter and basically spent all day throwing mail based on that zip code into different boxes. And each of those boxes went to a different post office based on that zip code. Imagine what that was like beforehand, right? Yeah. And the, and the zip code doesn't go back all that far, only 1963. And it wasn't, I mean, it was implemented, but it, it wasn't like a habit kind of a thing like uh, like it is now. Because I remember in the 70s, do you remember this? There being television commercials yeah, reminding people you. to use it, yeah. Yeah. Don't I'm sure it's because thing. like the old people who, like, again, we're dealing with like people who can't advance with technology, right? Because right. they, they go the old ways like, I'm not putting that code on that bill. Yep. Don't forget the zip code. Yeah. The deep state. <laughs> Zero July. All right, but that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you guys next week. Say goodnight, Jeff. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.